Welcome to Starting Points, a Faith on Hill podcast. Starting Points goes through the whole Bible, from Genesis through Revelation, including all of the major sections of the Bible. And it's meant to be a starting or a restarting point for anyone's study, reading, engaging with, wrestling with the Bible, which we believe to be the very Word of God. We are currently going through the prophetic books of the Bible. And as we have talked about before, that doesn't mean that there is no prophecy anywhere else in the Bible, just that these books were sort of singularly devoted to uh, the prophecies, the writings of certain prophets in the Old Testament times in Israel. Now, we're coming today to Daniel, and this is the last of what's called the major prophets. And you can go back to the uh, episode a few weeks back about the prophetic books to understand why it's major versus minor. It doesn't have to do with importance. It has to do with just the size of their book and how much they wrote. Uh, Daniel is interesting for a lot of reasons. Like Isaiah, there is some disagreement about who wrote the book of Daniel. Um, And we'll get into that debate in a minute, but I will say that I affirm that Daniel, the same Daniel that is talked about in the book, is the one who wrote it. Now, it's really divided into two parts. It's really, in some ways, two different books. The first six chapters are a historical narrative. You know, in uh, 605 BC, thereabouts, Jerusalem was laid siege to and was overrun. And the Babylonians took nobles, aristocrats, their children back to Babylon as sort of hostages. Israel, uh, sorry, not Israel, the southern kingdom, Judah. Judah, you play nice. You do what we want. And the king in Judah better do what he's told to do. And we have hostages. We have your sons and we have your daughters. And they're there in Babylon. And Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and others are there being held captive, never to return home again. And so the first six chapters are the historical narrative. It tells the account of Daniel from a young man to an old man as he is living in exile, trying to serve God and serve God's people as best he can. And actually, a couple years ago, we studied the book of Daniel on Sunday mornings, and you can go back, you know, on Spotify or Apple Podcast, and you'll find the uh, the podcast teachings from that if you want to get a more in-depth look at that book. The second half of the book from chapter 7 through chapter 12 is the prophecies that Daniel received from God about the future, about Israel returning to uh, the land out of its captivity, about God's plans for human history going forward. And so that, that's kind of how the book is divided. First six chapters are a historical narrative. This is Daniel's story. The seventh through the twelfth chapter are all the prophecies that God gave him concerning the future. Now, we always ask what the human story is. And I think there's two main stories. The first is in those first six chapters, and that is living in exile. And how do we as believers live as the people of God in exile, waiting which is where we are now, by the way. This is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is not here. America is not the promised land. We are waiting in exile. And while we wait, like Daniel, we do our best to serve God and to serve people and do the work that God has given us to do. The other part of the human story is this future hope. While the, while the first six chapters focus on the here and now, we also have this great hope for the future. We know that this is not how it is supposed to be, and it is not how it always will be, and that God will make things new. 
We also ask about the landmines. Well, I said earlier that there are debates about Daniel. Who wrote it? When was it written? Uh, among Bible critics, the first recorded critic of Daniel was this guy, uh, Pophory, and he was in the third century, and he was an anti-Christian philosopher. He, and you say, well, how do you know he's anti-Christian? Well, he, he wrote a book called Against the Christians. I mean, I, I have a pretty good guess that he was like the Richard Dawkins of his day. And he denounced specifically the book of Daniel as a fake written in the Maccabean period about 500 years later. Uh, Ivor Fletcher, uh, he's the one who kind of is where I'm getting this from. And he also said, uh, Fletcher says this, to this day, critics follow the lead of Porphyry and question the book's validity on two key points. First, it's supposed historical inaccuracies. And second, that its prophecies were written after the events. In other words, the book is nothing more than a poor record of history made to appear as prophecy. In 1850, a German, uh, Bible commentary claimed that the name of King Belteshazzar, uh, which is towards the end of the narrative part of the book, um, was found in the book of Daniel, um, and it was just a made-up king that never existed. Then, so there were, critics didn't just come from outside the church like Palfrey, but there were critics within the church, supposedly, uh, who were criticizing the book. But then four years later, in 1854, the British consul in Iraq was excavating ancient ruins of a tower on behalf of the British Museum. Because they had these like, you know, the British Empire was a mess and it was an evil thing. Uh, we talk about evil and evil empires. The British Empire was terribly evil. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't have time to get into it. But point is, if you were like a, a, an official, kind of a bureaucrat of the British Empire, you had like the things that you were supposed to do, you know, the, the bureaucratic stuff and, and kind of administrating. But then you had some free time and you could take on side work. And so this guy took on some side hustle for, from the British Museum. And so he's getting paid to do this archaeological excavation while he's also getting paid by the British government to, uh, you know, to kind of run the place. So he's excavating this tower. And he discovers a four-inch-long clay cylinders that were covered in cuneiform script dating from the 6th century B.C. And in the book uh, Discoveries from Bible Times, Alan Miller describes what happened next. When the consul took his find to Baghdad, his senior colleague was able to read the inscriptions. Uh, this is a guy named Sir Henry Rawlinson. And he had dis uh, deciphered or translated the Babylonian cuneiform language. And... Rawlinson immediately saw the importance of the cylinders. Quote, the inscriptions had been written at the command of Nabonidus, king of Babylon, from 555 to 539 BC. The words that they carried proved that the ruins was the temple of the city of Ur. This is, by the way, the same city that Abraham came from. The words were part of a prayer for long life and good health for Nabonidus and for his eldest son. The name of that son, clearly written, was Belshazzar. So the fact that he was described as the crown prince, heir to the throne, and as such, the number two ruler of the kingdom fits perfectly with the biblical account, which indicates that he gave Daniel the number three position. Many of the charges of so-called historical inaccuracies in Daniel result from a lack of hard archaeological evidence in which to ground Daniel's historical statement. And because of the present rationalistic approach, the Bible, like other historical documents, is considered suspect until proven accurate. And that's... Um, from Alan Millard. But here's, here's my point. The Bible has been proven accurate time and time and time again. You know, for all of the problems of the British Empire, they did a couple of real solids for us. And here's a couple of the solids. Uh, 
One was these cylinders. People said, there's no such thing as a King Balthazar. And then we find out that there was. He was the number two guy, and he was the region over that part of the empire. So functionally, he's like, you know, junior king, right? And so calling him the king, the ruler, the overseer, it wouldn't be out of line. They also did us a solid uh, in that they discovered, like, Nineveh, which, again, Bible critics said, oh, Jonah is just a made-up story. There was no city called Nineveh. It's just a, a, a myth. It's not a real place. And then they found it. You can go to the ruins of Nineveh. The Bible has been proven accurate historically, archaeologically, over and over and over again. And yet, people still want to go, oh, well, come on, prove it. This is something I find to be true. This is off subject, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, recently, somebody posted something on their social media, and it was an attack on the church, and it was using all of these statistics. There was no, no citation for their statistics that they were quoting. Now, fortunately, in college, uh, when I was in grad school, I wrote a um, fairly well-cited, I like to think, um, paper on that very subject. So I pulled it out, and I looked over it, and I said, yep, that's inaccurate. I gave my citations, and they were like, whatever. There was no responsibility on their part to back up their claims, which were lies. And when I came with evidence, they didn't care. You see what I'm saying here? Bible critics can come at the Bible because it is foundational and authoritative to our faith, and they can say it's full of inaccuracies, it's full of uh, you can't trust it, and yet over and over and over again, it is found to be trustworthy, and they don't care. When we come with the proof, they say, ah, whatever, what about this thing? Well, give us time. Let us look into that. One of the things that I appreciate greatly about Christian apologists is that they have a willingness to look at any and every question and charge that is laid at the church's door. Do I agree with everything that they say? No, I do not. But I appreciate the willingness. I appreciate the willingness to engage with anything and everything. And I wish that the secular world around us would give us even a tenth of that willingness to engage with the questions that we put at their door moving forward. So as I said, a lot of the, uh, the debates are about, is Daniel historically accurate? I believe it is. The other debates are kind of the standard prophetic debates among Christians. Is Daniel speaking of some time that's already happened, or is he speaking of a time that has not yet happened? And we've gone over a lot of this stuff when we went through Revelation. You know, people have theological traditions that have pre-established ideas about biblical prophecy, and then Daniel just becomes a place to argue with them. Not interested in that. Now, among non-Christians, for example, uh, the Jewish people, they have debates about Daniel. Daniel was a prophet, but he did not prophesy in Israel. And so it was kind of like, is he a prophet or is he something different? Is he just an historical account of our exile? Um, he is referred to in the book of Ezekiel. So the other parts of the Bible refer to him and give respect and honor. Um, and the, the the rabbis and the scribes and the and the, the uh scholars and priests after Israel returned, after the captivity, then they accepted the writings. So I accept Daniel as a prophet, but there's debate, is he a prophet or is he a sage? And I think that gets into nuances of modern Judaism that I, I won't claim to be an expert in, so I'm not going to, you know, I'm just say there is debates about it. Um, now, the biggest question I always want to end with is where is Jesus seen? He's with them in the fire. If you know one of the most famous stories, Daniel has two very famous stories. The, the one is Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel gets, runs afoul of the king. 
He's thrown into this pit. There's lions in there and God shuts the lion's mouth. But the other famous story is the fiery furnace. Daniel's not there for some reason. I tend to think he's representative of the church being raptured and removed uh, from the time of tribulation. That's just my opinion. I don't want to argue with you about it. But Daniel is not present, but his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there, and they won't bow to the false idols. And so they're thrown into this, into this great fire, this furnace. And the king looks in and he says, hey, we threw three people in, but there's a fourth person. And that fourth one looks like the son of man. I believe Jesus is there. It's called a Christophany. That's the big theological word for it. A pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus. And I believe Jesus is there with them. I believe that when Daniel sees a prophecy of the future, a vision of the future, and it talks about the prince who is to come in Daniel chapter nine, I believe that he sees Jesus, Messiah, the prince who will be cut off. I believe that's speaking of Jesus. So I believe Jesus is all through the book of Daniel. I believe that Daniel is one of the most important books in the whole Bible. I think there's questions about like, which books should Christians read first? You know, the Bible is Genesis through Revelation, but unlike most books, because it's not one book, it's a collection of books. Do you read Genesis through Revelation, you know, all the way? Or do you start with the Gospels? You know, how do you start your kids? This is a stupid example, but how do you start your kids on Star Wars? Do you show them the prequels first or do you show them the original trilogy first? I showed them the original trilogy first. But the point is like, you know, there's the Gospels the most important, Acts, the, the epistles from the apostles, the New Testament. Genesis is incredibly important to understanding the Bible. Um, you know, Exodus, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel. But I, I believe after, after the Gospels, after Genesis, or even right up there with Genesis, Daniel is like one of the most important books, both because it, it speaks to us as Christians and how to live in exile. And that's something American Christians don't know how to do very well. It also speaks to us of things to come. Daniel chapter 9 is the most important chapter in the Bible when it comes to understanding biblical prophecy. I believe that firmly. And so it's an incredibly important book. It's an incredibly encouraging book, and it's an incredibly vital book for those of us who are believers who want to understand what it is that God is saying to us. And I'm thankful that God has given us this book. I'm thankful that we can engage with it and work through it. I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of Starting Points. Of course, you can like, subscribe, share, all that kind of stuff. YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We appreciate it. You can uh, follow us on social media at Faith on Hill. We gather together on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m., both online and in person, to study the Word of God together, to worship, to pray together, and to live in community both on Sundays and throughout the week in small groups. My name's Adam. I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of Starting Points.